Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Raja Rajamanar, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at MasterCard. Rajas manage large-scale businesses at Fortune 500 companies in the financial services, consumer packaged goods, and healthcare categories for companies like Unilever, Citigroup, Anthem, and now MasterCard, which he's spent the last five years evolving and nurturing the MasterCard brand. He's been noted among the world's most influential CMOs by Forbes, among the most tech-savvy by Adweek, and among the most innovative by Business Insider. On today's show, we go behind the scenes of the evolution of the Priceless campaign into Start Something Priceless. We spend quite a bit of length talking about the evolution, what drove it, the factors behind it, and we also give some extremely helpful tips to CMOs that start their new jobs and try to avoid the new bride syndrome, which you'll learn more about. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, Raja, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alan. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I thought we could start this session by you talking about your background and your career path to becoming CMO or Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at MasterCard. I believe you started off, your early education was in, to be an engineer and you were started in paints. Is that right? That's exactly right. So I have been trained as a chemical engineer in India. 
and I did my MBA soon after that, specializing in marketing. And I joined my first company. This was called Asian Paints, which was a paint manufacturing company. It was the largest in India. But curiously, they didn't have a marketing department. So I was the founder flunky of the marketing department, reporting to two <laughs> bosses on day one. And that's where I began my career and that transition from academics into employment. Uh, having worked there for about three and a half years, I moved to Unilever. And that's where I actually joined in sales. I was there in sales for about three years. And then I moved to marketing after that, managing the personal care products of the company in India. And after about seven years with Unilever in total, I moved to Citibank. And I moved to Citibank in Dubai. So it was a change of industry, change of country, change of product category, everything. And I launched their credit cards business in the Middle East region. And I had a good stint there for about seven years with increasing responsibilities, eventually becoming there the overall P&L manager for the retail bank for the region. And from there, I was promoted and moved by Citibank to Europe. I was managing all consumer assets, which is mortgages, auto loans, personal loans, credit cards, etc., for the Europe, Middle East, and Africa region. And went from there to the U.S. I came here to the U.S. and uh, as the global head of business development. And then I became the chairman and CEO of Diners Club North America, where I managed the turnaround of that business over two and a half years. And then I moved back to the core of Citigroup, which was the largest SBU, a strategic business unit for Citigroup in those days, which were the core credit cards in North America. And then I left the financial services industry in 2009 to go to the health industry, I joined Humana and I was there as the chief innovation and marketing officer, but with broader set of responsibilities than what the title suggests. And after four years in healthcare industry, where my last role also included managing a $11 billion business with WellPoint. And I moved back into New York with MasterCard as its chief marketing officer. And over the last five years that I have been here, my responsibilities expanded to also oversee communications. We integrated marketing and communications into one unified function. And I'm also the president of our healthcare business here. Yeah, great, great. Well, it's a, a truly global career. A lot of positions in financial services where you're on the health side or, or on the card side. And you've come back and forth to credit cards a couple of times. Is there something about credit cards or the payment industry that attracts you? Not really. It's like, I think more of it has been circumstantial. I would love to say that everything was absolutely pre-planned, but I think it's a question <laughs> of a good opportunity coming along and uh, me taking that opportunity. And then if I have to see my career, roughly half of my time I spent in marketing and half of my time I spent managing P&Ls, managing businesses. And yes, I spent time about seven years in the packaged goods and I spent about four years in the healthcare and the rest of it is in financial services. And yes, my involvement and experience with the payments industry has been fairly deep. Okay. Well, so MasterCard, everyone, I think, at least that listens to this podcast will know the priceless campaign, the historical priceless campaign. And you've recently unveiled kind of a new iteration called Start Something Priceless. Can you talk about the progression of that and from where it came and, and where you're taking it? Yep. So 20 years back, MasterCard had really taken a contrarian position in the market as it pertained to its communication platform. Right at the time, being a technology enabler in the payments space, 
you would expect a company like MasterCard to be talking about either rewards or various security features or various benefits of the payment products and so on. But what the company has done or had done in a very visionary kind of a manner at the time was to take a position that it is not money or things that money can buy that truly matter in your life. The really priceless things in your life are those which money cannot buy. Like, for example, the time that you spend with your 11-year-old son at a baseball match. And those are the things that matter. And for everything else, there is MasterCard. I thought it was a brilliant positioning, exceptionally good communication. Advertisement campaign has result, and it instantaneously clicked with consumers around the world. So it cut across cultures, it cut across languages. So the campaign ended up being in 58 languages in 110 countries around the world. And it really ran successfully for the company for 16 years. Five years back, when I joined the company, one of the first things I wanted to do was to see if that campaign was still relevant today and was it being effective today, meaning five years back. And when I took a look at it, the first thing that hit me was the platform, the advertising platform, was still very compelling. People resonated with that campaign exceptionally well, even after 16 years and across all geographies. But the world was a completely different place. 1997, the world was very different. And 2013, it was totally different. So 1997, there was no social media. There were no digital channels. And consumers really Actually, their whole purchase cycle has changed with these digital revolutions. Their expectations from brands have changed. So if the world in which we were living in 2013 was quite substantially different than when Priceless Campaign was originally created, my challenge and question to my team and to my agency partners was how did our campaign evolve or how should our campaign evolve with the changing times? And with that, we started looking at it deeply. And everyone, of course, was very passionately married to the campaign platform, understandably so. But we said we need to take a step back, be objective, and then start questioning everything so that we are all collectively in a better place afterwards. So three key highlights came out. The first one is Priceless is a great platform and uniquely associated with MasterCard. But it was being exploited only for the advertising campaign. Why not make it a holistic marketing platform, which means that Priceless has to be infused into every aspect of marketing, whether it is products, whether it is promotions, whether it is distribution, whatever it is. So this is one big learning. Second, Priceless also, instead of it being just a communication platform or advertising platform, we felt that it was time for us to move into an experiential platform because the world started actually seeing a significant rise in ad blocks. Consumers have been viewing advertisements as an annoyance, as an interruption to their good experiences that they would like to have, and marketers were really an irritant for them. So we said if that's how consumers are looking, Using this powerful platform only for advertising is shortchanging ourselves. So we moved our entire direction of journey to experiential. So we started moving more in the direction of creating experiences. And the way we coined the term internally for ourselves was we will move from storytelling to story making because storytelling is dead. Consumers are speaking with their behavior very clearly that they don't want stories to be told by brands to them. They don't want brands to communicate with them through ads, which are actually an interruption for them and so on. So this was a second thing. And the third thing 
what we also saw was that there was a tremendous opportunity to not only observe and highlight and celebrate those priceless moments in people's lives, which the campaign was doing for 16 years, but we said, can we enable and create those priceless moments in people's lives? In which case, you are making the consumer a part of the story. They create their own story and then they become your brand ambassadors and narrate their story to their audiences who don't block them with ad blocks or whatever. So these three steps actually changed our evolution to phase two, as I would call it, of a priceless campaign. And it ran very successfully for us. The change direction paid us off quite nicely. You know, we could see our brand growing from strength to strength. We are outpacing our competitors in terms of how our brand was strengthening. We could see the brand clearly driving business results because the whole objective of marketing is not only to build the brand, but also to drive the business, to fuel the business. And it was really firing on all cylinders and establishing platforms of sustainable competitive advantage for the company. Now, from then on, what we also said is we don't want to wait for 16 years to discover as to what our next phase of evolution is, but we want to review every single year as to the relevance of our platform, the effectiveness of our direction, and so on. So last year, we felt that in the entire world, something was happening in the culture. We call them the cultural truths or cultural insights, where there is more and more of consumer reaction or people reaction to the biases that are existing in the society today. It could be a bias against gender. It could be a bias against race. It could be a bias against your color. Or There were so many types of biases that were prevailing on the one hand. Number two, consumers are telling that brands actually have the power to make a difference. And they expect brands to take a stance boldly in what they believe in, and do something about it, which means they want brands to take action, not just advertise. Mm -hmm. So we said, here is an opportunity for us to tap into this new cultural truth, so to speak. And this is not just in one geography or two geographies, but it is globally pervasive. So we said, what is it that we can do? So that's when we said we have to actually evolve our priceless campaign, not just to enable those priceless moments in people's lives, but to inspire priceless movements. So we say it's from priceless moments to priceless movements. And that's where we actually started this whole direction around start something priceless. And we want, we tested it extensively uh, internally with our own employees, and they were extremely excited about it. They felt that, particularly the millennials, if you see, they want to work for a company that's genuinely doing some social good, some significant social good. They want to feel a part of that movement and not just to go to work, but to make a difference in the world, uh, to other people's lives and so on. So this is something which we started with our own employees. And for example, a group of our own employees, they started a movement like the Ice Bucket Challenge. They called it Salsa. S-A-L-S-A, salsa. Mm. So they said, you dance, you make a salsa move. And this is to raise awareness and funding for finding cures to ALS. So ALS, you know, the way they came up intelligently, salsa, the middle three words are ALS in salsa, right? So, and this is something which they were owning, they were driving, nobody asked them to do it. They just sort of took it and then started doing it. So we said, this has got a lot of promise. So we as a company should really tap into this and started the whole campaign called Start Something Priceless. And we launched it in uh, around Grammy Awards, for example, this year, where we wanted to shine 
the spotlight on the biases that exist in the music industry. For example, in the music industry, you would expect that people will be judged based on their talent, their musical talent. But more often than not, what we find is that people are judged more by their appearances than by their talent, which is a real sad thing. And we have partnered with you know, several artists in the music space in the past. And this time we wanted to focus on those people who faced these biases of different types and fought against them and overcame those. So we partnered with Caesar, for example, who was the most Grammy-nominated female artist this year. And she had been told throughout her growing years that she was not necessarily very pretty looking and that you know, they were commenting about her physical appearance, which she said was destroying her self-confidence. And But then she stood up, she fought, and she took courage. And eventually, she came to where she came to be, right? With the most nominated Grammy Award for a female artist. That was phenomenal. So we thought this story will be very inspiring. And likewise, we showcased five other artists and for their struggles that they're going through and fighting against the biases in the society. So eventually, this is a campaign that we launched saying that, you know, you need to overcome your biases. Don't judge a book by its cover. That was a song which was uh, Bo Diddley's song that was there, which we had version, uh, cover versions of this recorded by these various artists and we released the album. And we had exceptionally positive response with a tremendous positive sentiment around it, which gave us a lot of boost. So now we have expanded this campaign to other parts of the world last month, actually last week. We launched it in London with uh, Brit Awards, where we talked about people letting their ego come in between and the process losing relationships. And there are simple biases that are there, simple differences that are there. You need to overcome those, just reach out because relationships are truly priceless and so on. So we did this with, we have produced a video which we are launching, I believe, next month with Pele, who is one of our brand ambassadors in the world of soccer, where there are biases from one nation to another nation. It's not just individuals. So we had 22 people from different countries and different languages come together. And we were asking them on camera, what do they think about people from the other country? And the kind of statements that were made were fascinating. How biased people are and what kind of templates that they operate with. And once they start playing the game of soccer, organically the bond together all the differences and the biases, they disappear and they come together in a very touching, emotional way. That was really something which we felt was extremely positive. So what we are trying to do is that we are trying to shine the spotlight on various aspects like this in the society and urging people to do something priceless. It could be something as simple as put away your mobile phone over dinner and have meaningful conversations with your family. That's truly priceless. Hmm. Or adopt a pet from a shelter or make a difference in a kid's life or begin changing the world. And this is the new campaign that we are on. And I'm personally very excited about it. And the employees in the company are feeling very proud about it because you want each one of your employees to be a brand ambassador for the company. And they're very, very proud of it at this point in time. I feel so good where we are with this campaign. Well, that's great. I've seen some of the videos that you mentioned and they're truly heartfelt and they move you. One of the questions I have for you, you kind of answered it, but I have a different way of asking it, I think. One that you answered, I think, is why did you switch from simple storytelling to creating these movements? But I, I want to circle back because you said that people were looking for brands to 
take a stand or to be engaged. Do you remember where that came from, where that source of inspiration came from? And was it just one or, or was it multiple kind of data points leading you in that direction? There were multiple data points. One of the things, for example, from the top of my mind is an exhaustive global study that was done by McCann. And where clearly they have uh, established that more than 80% of people feel that brands have the power to change, change the world. Number two, they feel that brands do not simply advertise, but they take a stance boldly on things that they believe in. And lastly, that the brands act. So this is something which has come out of, for example, the McCann study. That was one of the several studies that we have actually seen. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as you think about harnessing that power for brands, what does it do for the brand? How do you think about it in terms of what it does for your brand, but also then, you know, the power it does for consumers? Right. So from a brand perspective, what is our objective, right? So we want to be well connected in an emotional way to the consumers. There has to be a consumer affection for the brand. That's number one. Number two, I have to position my brand in a differentiated way from my competitors in general and across all the brands as well. It's not just in my category because when you are competing for a consumer's space in his or in her heart and mind, you're not just competing with other brands in your category, but you're competing across all the brands and all the categories. So you as a brand should stand for something that is unique, distinct, and differentiated. So this is one. Secondly, the bonding that consumers have with you, which we call brand affection. And number three is when consumers are presented with choices at various points in their purchase cycle or usage cycle, hopefully they should prefer your brand versus somebody else's brand. I would say these are the three primary objectives for how and why we want to build the brand. What we find is when you are authentic, when you're truthful, when you're genuine, and you're standing for something that the consumers care about, we would actually accomplish every one of these objectives pretty effectively. But the key thing here is consistency and authenticity. You cannot keep flitting from one current topic to another current topic without having a common thread that needles the whole story around the brand in a consistent fashion. So consumers do not like brands that are not inconsistent. They look at them as being opportunistic, and that is a death knell for a brand. The second, the brand has to be very authentic. If it tries to fake, consumers will see through from a mile distance, and that does more harm to your brand than any help. So, so long as you have these clearly, and of course, at the end of the day, your products have to be good. They have to have again a good quality. But these days, product differentiation is a lot more difficult because right. you know of the democratization of technology and everything else that goes around with it. The emotional differentiation, the connectivity differentiation is very critical. And that's what we are trying to accomplish. Hmm. That's good. So there's, there's obviously this shift towards brands wanting to do good or do good in the world and encouraging consumers to do the same thing. Do you think brands, you know, like MasterCard, I know Unilever is also known very well for this. Do you think that you'll be able to change how marketing is done? I think so. I definitely feel that brands will now start becoming more and more socially aware, 
socially conscious and try to do something good for the society because that is an expectation from consumers it's not only because it's a good thing to do it's also because that's what consumers are demanding of their brands and so you have to be there in that space for sure now i'll just give you one quick example right at mastercard mm-hmm. we have a foundation called mastercard foundation it's a philanthropic wing and this company is if i get it right the single largest corporate philanthropy in the world wow but it is run completely separately as a company on its own out of canada and they're totally independent the only thing we share common is our brand name their mastercard foundation and we are mastercard and we don't influence what they do they operate very independently now we could have sat back and said oh we formed the world's largest foundation so we are doing enough amount of social good now we don't have to do anything else beyond that but we didn't take that kind of an approach what we said is the aspect of doing something around causes should be core to your business not just a philanthropy or the foundation kind of an activity there is an opportunity to infuse the social causes into the core of our business to drive the business and to drive the brand so we launched for example something called priceless causes which is one of the four priceless platforms that we have created to bring priceless to life and priceless causes is the one for example which is working with world food program and this year we are feeding about 300000 children at their schools for one full year right and hopefully that number will go up in future or we are partnering with stand up to cancer foundation and we have raised so far in excess of 40 million dollars that goes into the r&d the research and development of cures for cancer and they have already come up with two drugs that have been FDA approved recently. So literally Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company they offer flexible budget friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals get more cool facts about United Healthcare short term plans at uh1.com many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plushcare plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. As a company, as a technology company who happened to be in the payments space, we are feeding children on one level, and we are trying to find cures for cancer at another level, both of which are highly meaningful and relevant to the consumers. right and we are trying to connect these dots in a genuine way and in a transparent authentic fashion and the beauty is it is paying off it's paying off at the brand level it's also driving our business so for example when we are raising these funds for stand up to cancer we are open about it when we tell consumers for example in the united states that during these 8 weeks of the promotion if you use your mastercard at any restaurant instead of paying with say, the cash or check or some other payment mechanism if you use mastercard we contribute a tiny fraction like a cent or a cent and a half 
to stand up the Cancer Foundation. And because of the scale that we have got, the volumes are huge and the amount builds up very quickly. So that's how we have been able to raise in excess of $40 million. And that we let the consumers know. For example, at the MLB World Series, we present a check and everybody in the stadium knows and they know that they are actually standing up for somebody they care about and it gets broadcast and so on. So we are accomplishing a lot here Doing social good, that is core to what we are doing as a business that drives incremental volumes for me, incremental market share and incremental share of wallet. It also drives better brand ratings for me. So overall, this is a kind of approach we are finding it's extremely meaningful for us at MasterCard. And I don't see why it will be different for any other company or any other brand. I think to your specific question, the long-winded answer is yes more and more brands will embrace societal good as a core part of their strategy. Okay. You mentioned this or alluded to it that as consumers are opting into ad blockers and opting for ad-free content to pay a subscription to, do you think as marketers like yourself drive this change to showing the good that can come, do you think that consumers will change their openness to advertising, to being marketed to? Kind of a lofty question, I realize, but... (laughs) No, no, I get it. I get it. So, Alan, you and I are consumers. Yes. Right? So let's behave like consumers, not as marketers and not as experts, right? As consumers, you're watching a beautiful program and suddenly your experience is interrupted and an ad pops in your face. It is an annoyance. Yes. It's a pain point for the consumer. It's an interruption of a beautiful experience that they're having. And they hate it. They hate marketers for it. Now, If it is happening at a very sporadic level, you say, yeah, this is something which you can live with or you can overcome. But the thing is, today it is gaining so much amount of scale. Like, for example, when I have seen the statistics last, as of the first quarter 2017, there are more than 225 million active users of ad blocks. And the growth rate seems to be about 12 to 12.5% per quarter. That's huge. Yeah. And the mobile device manufacturers, particularly in Asia, are looking at it and saying, hey, if consumers want ad blocks, let me make it easier for them to do that. So they are putting ad block software pre installed into the devices even before the sale happens. So when a consumer receives his or her device, they have an ad block software in it and they have to just activate it with two clicks. And then they shut the marketing pests out completely. Mm. And what's also happening, consumers are spending a lot more time with these mobile devices than in front of the traditional TV or whatever medium that they were exposed to before. So consumers are really going towards this direction in a big way, in at scale, in a huge scale. Likewise, the other point you mentioned is absolutely right when consumers are going to Hulu. Now, Hulu is like, they've got 100 million subscribers already, watching a billion hours of content every single week. (laughs) And that's totally ad-free. So consumers are not only putting ad blocks, they're even paying money for ad-free content. Like YouTube Red is that, right? Hulu. And then you've got Netflix. Actually, if I said Hulu before, it's actually Netflix I'm talking about, which is 100 million consumers and 1 billion hours of content that is ad-free per week. Now, if this is how scaled consumer's behavior is, you have to take into cognizance. It's not a passing trend. As I see it, consumers simply don't want interruptions to their experiences and they care about their experiences. They're looking for opportunities for having those seamless experiences 
And as marketers, we have to realize and say, hey, if that's what consumers are saying, banging on their heads with your ads is not the solution going into the future. You have to find new ways. And that's where, as I said before, we have shifted significantly into experiential marketing. Nice. Giving experiences to consumers. So they are the storytellers and they tell the stories with the brand subtly in the background to their network of friends and family. And that's what works. Interesting. Well, so I want to talk a little bit more internally about the company and how this campaign potentially is driving that effort. You mentioned Salsa and the ALS effort that I believe you said came from an employee inside the company. Are there other examples of how you see this benefiting your employee base as well? Absolutely. First and foremost, our employees are also consumers. Mm -hmm. So whether it is our products or whether it is our marketing campaigns, they have to appeal internally to our employees as well. Otherwise, they are not going to be advocates or ambassadors for our company, for our brand, and for our products and services. So charity begins at home. So our employees have to really feel proud of what we are doing and what they are doing collectively. So ALS is one example, the Salsa program that they have got. Now, we have got into volunteerism. So as a company, till 2014, we used to give two voluntary days or two days for volunteerism for our employees. Now that we have increased it to five days per year, as an example. We have got something called Girls for Tech. So this is about encouraging small girls to get into the STEM areas. So we actually go to schools and talk to girls who are 11 years, 12 years of age. You think they're very small. That's what I thought. But these little girls are powerhouses. They're so bright. They're so intelligent. But then the societal templates have defined which fields that they can get into. And we are trying to break those molds and say, hey, STEM is an exciting area for you, whether it's science, technology, engineering, or mathematics. Come in. So we teach them about coding. We teach them about fraud management. We teach them about network management. The first time I heard about the syllabus that we teach these 11-year-old and 12-year-old girls, I said, can they even understand what we are trying to do? I was so pleasantly surprised. Right. They are powerhouses. They are brilliant. They're very intelligent. They're curious. And if you really motivate them in that direction, there is no reason why they would not opt for these fields and why they would not be getting into these areas, which are so exciting, right? And so this, for example, we have got right. almost, I would say, almost close to 40,000 girls that we have reached out to around the world so far to try to get them excited about this entire effort. And in fact, what we have taken as a goal internally, and this is done by employees, the company never mandated. So we said by the year 2020, we would like to have reached out to 200,000 girls around the world and to motivate them to go to these areas of science, technology, engineering, and management. And this program, internally, we called it Girls for Tech. This is not a company-devised program. Employees came together, they devised it themselves. And yes, you know, we, as a company, we said, yeah, this is fantastic. Go ahead and do it. Go forth. And these people, they did. And the success has been terrific. And people celebrate it. They feel very motivated and excited about it. So that's how we are going. So that's another example that I can give you. Wow. Well, I like very much what you guys are doing. As you know, when new CMOs come on the, the scene, a lot of times their first reaction is to change everything. And in many cases, that's the right move. But you didn't do that. You talked about the evolution and why you chose to evolve the campaign. But I'm curious, what advice or rationale or, or maybe just stop at advice would you give other CMOs that find themselves in a new, new environment? 
Yeah, actually, I keep giving this story to my team members, right? In India, which is where I grew up, there is a story that talk about new bride syndrome. <laughs> so in India, we used to have joint families where the brothers and sisters and the parents, they all live together in the same family. And when the boys get married, their wives also come into the household and so on. So when a new bride comes into the family, the first thing that she tries to do is to impress everyone and leave her own mark on the household. And that she does by first and foremost, trashing everything <laughs> that there is there. Oh, you know what? This is not how things have to be cooked. In my parents' house, the food tastes better and this is how it is cooked. I'll let me tell you what is the right way and so on. So one of the advices that I received very early on in my career was to say that my boss at the time said that, Raja, don't ever be a new bride. Don't fall for a new bride syndrome. And that I kept as a mantra whenever I moved my company or a job within a given company. So when I came to MasterCard, the first thing I cautioned myself very overtly is the campaign, Priceless, is working so well, don't mess it up. <laughs> but on wow. the other hand, also I realized the fact that it was created at a time when the world was a very different place. So there is an opportunity for evolution. So we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we really enhance and improve. So my advice to any CMO or somebody who is stepping into that role, or any marketer for that matter, why only a CMO, is when you're coming into an area, first and foremost, understand clearly what the current state is and what opportunity does it have to shape the future. If there are gaps, that need to be addressed, address the gaps. Don't try to throw the whole thing out. Mm. Respect the heritage in the company because the company might be doing very well even before you landed on the spot, right? It was doing anyway well. So don't come and say, now I'm going to change the whole world. Respect the tradition, respect the culture, understand fully why things are the way they are before even embarking to go ahead and start changing. Don't do that. That's two. The third thing is many times, consumers are less tired about a campaign or a concept. It is the marketers who are getting tired of their own campaigns quicker and they want to start producing the next campaign and the next <laughs> campaign and the next concept. But consumers are not waking up and living with only your product from morning to night as you are as a marketer. So they get far less exposed to your product or to your brand or to your campaign. And it takes them a while before they get fatigued. So don't impose your fatigue on the consumers and use that as a reason to change your campaign. Stick with your campaign. As I said before, consistency gives clarity to the consumer as to what your brand stands for. Don't let go of that consistency. And that's, I think, it is very, very important. And don't be in a hurry to change things for the sake of changing or to leave your own imprint but try to take what is good and enhance it and take it to the next level. That's how I would approach it. And that's what my advice will be to the other marketers. Well, and, and having great mentors like the one that said, don't be a new bride. I mean, that was a phenomenal advice. Absolutely. I feel so grateful for that. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you've changed with the times and I'm curious, you know, what, what do you think other marketers could learn from you know, MasterCard's evolution? from a, you know, a brand that's been around forever. Yeah. So firstly, I would say that marketers have to be very, very contemporary. They need to stay on top of not only the societal trends and the cultural trends, but also the technology evolution. 
there is a ton of artificial intelligence that's coming out. The data analytics have been so democratized and so advanced. It's unbelievably empowering to a good marketer. The digital interfaces and the digital technologies that help you connect with consumers in real time in a contextually appropriate, hyper-targeted fashion is unprecedented. All these will give you new ways of interacting with the consumers at scale in a powerful way. And consumer and marketers, unless they stay on top of these emerging trends, they get obsolete very quickly. So that's number one. Number two, most of the marketers and the CMOs have risen through the creative side of the house. But today's marketer needs to be successful on the analytical side of the house as well. It's not to the exclusion of creativity. It is and so it's creativity and analytics, which means you need to understand your business numbers. You need to understand your ROIs. It's not sufficient to just look at your marketing metrics. You need to connect the dots between the marketing metrics and the business metrics. The CEO and the CEO of the company don't care much about your marketing metrics. You care about them. Mm. But what they care about is the business metrics. So you need to clearly and confidently be able to justify or fight for your budgets or for your department, evangelize. And you need to have that gravitas to be able to carry forth with your executive committee or management committee colleagues that you understand the business, you understand the numbers, you know what you're talking about, and therefore justify whatever is being done. Now, the reason why I say this is there is a little bit of an existential crisis for CMOs. Mm. Now, some of the large companies have eliminated the role of a CMO and instead have roles like chief growth officer or a chief revenue officer, chief customer officer. Think about it. If a large consumer company, an iconic consumer company based on marketing so far, suddenly says, I'm getting a non-marketing guy and make him as the chief growth officer of the company, what does it tell you about marketing? And more and more companies are actually doing it, either as a substitute to the CMO or as an adjunct to the CMO. Mm -hmm. Now, both are not good because if you take away revenue, if you take away growth, if you take away customer, what the hell does a marketing guy do, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> so right. Is, there is a little bit of an existential crisis, as I see, and CMOs mm -hmm. have to be aware of it. They should train themselves, not only be contemporary, like I said before, but also to be mm -hmm. thorough at financials, thorough at data, thorough at technology, thorough at understanding the business drivers and be able to connect the dots in a convincing, compelling manner and not to hide behind the marketing jargon. I have spent 50% of my career, as I said, on the business side and 50% of the marketing side. And when I was on the business side, I literally used to give a lot of tough time to the marketing guys and ask them, why should I give you this money? And what am I getting to my bottom line or top line in return? And many of the times they would be seen like deer caught in headlights. That reduces their credibility. And next time when money has to be given, I would think 10 times whether I should give money to those guys or not. Now, of course, the karma comes to bite me back when I'm now in the marketing role and I'm justifying to somebody else why I need money or why I need to keep the money that is already there in the back pocket. The good thing is we have been able to move the needle quite nicely at MasterCard and I would love for it to be seen at all the other companies as well. It's not just about one company, right? It's a question of the entire industry. And I feel so grateful to the craft that has given me my livelihood over the last 32 years that I want to give something back. And actually, as a result of it, what we are doing internally, we are training all our people on Finance 101, Payments 101, and programs like that and getting into certifications. So they are all well-equipped. But I'm also spending personally a lot of time 
going and teaching in colleges like Harvard Business School, or I'm going to Yale, or to NYU, Columbia, Singapore Management University, and so on, and trying to work with the professors to tell them what is the current art and science of practicing marketing. How does it look in reality? 60 years back, some books have been written. They need to be really rewritten today. So we are providing them with case studies. We are working with them together. And we are actually asking them to come and shadow me. And they're spending time with me to see how marketing is in real life in an organization with one of the top 20 brands in the world. And hopefully the students will be more inspired and they'll be getting more contemporary knowledge than from books written 60 years back. So that's how we are trying to approach it. And I feel very, very good about this journey and grateful for whatever I'm able to give back to the craft. As I said, that has given me my livelihood over the last 32 years. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I have two quick questions for you, I think. I always love to get a little bit behind the scenes with the person I'm talking to. And in that effort, I always like to ask this question, you know, is there in your past, has there been an experience that defines or makes up who you think you've become? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the experiences that I remember when I first joined Unilever, Okay, Unilever in India in those days was considered to be the school of marketing and the ultimate employer. It's a place where everyone would love to be employed with all the MBA graduates. Now, at that time, I was in this company called Asian Paints. As I said, I was the founder flunky of the marketing department, and I produced some award-winning campaigns. I wrote them myself. I shot them myself. I edited them myself, and it went on to win national awards. So I felt terrific about it. And when I was interviewed by Unilever and they offered me a job, I thought I was already a marketing cat. I was a whiz kid. I know that self-perception. <laughs> Imagine my shock when at that time the head of marketing for Unilever in that country said, Raja, we, we want you to go and join in sales to start with. I was horrified. I said, here I'm a marketing genius and they're asking me to go to sales. Why would I want to go to sales? Sales is not really for intellectuals and creative geniuses. <laughs> okay. And he told me, he said, trust me, go experience it and then come back and then we will discuss. So I went very reluctantly. But once I started getting into it, I realized that being an ivory tower marketer with creativity and intellectual analytics is not really it. At the end of the day, the market reality happens where the rubber meets the road, which is where sales happen. You need to understand how your distribution system works. You need to understand how your salespeople work. What do they feel about your brand or your product? How do they sell? What pain points they have? And what kind of marketing warfares are fought in the marketplace? as opposed to uh, through uh, mass media. It was a fascinating experience. And that's when, in fact, I would say it's been a life-altering approach for me. A, to not have biases. And B, be on a continuous learning journey. So today, for example, every single day, I read up a lot to update myself on the latest and the best across multiple fields that touch or impact marketing in some way or the other whether it is technology, whether it's blockchain, artificial intelligence, whether it is virtual reality, augmented reality, whatever. So this is something which has taught me a lot. Number one, don't be biased, be very open-minded. And B, marketing is not a creative island which you are sitting in your ivory tower and doing stuff, but it is being in the field with the people and connecting to all other functions very effectively. And I think that I would say is probably one of the biggest lessons that I had. That's great. And last question for you. What's the future of marketing? What do you think it's going? Future of marketing is, to me, it becomes more a general management function as opposed to a specialized function. 
many CMOs today already have a technology budget that is bigger than many CTOs have for those companies. So you need to be a technology guru. Marketing and PR have actually started blending. At MasterCard, we combined both functions into one integrated function already. So you need to understand the PR aspects quite in depth to be able to effectively manage. As I said before, you need to understand finances very well because the CEOs and the CFOs demand that of you. And you owe it to the business because you're not just a brand builder, but you're a business driver. And you need to know what your investments are resulting in by way of business results. So that's one. So you have to be very good at finances. Data. You need to understand data analytics like crazy. You cannot accept those black boxes as the ultimate sources of truth. You need to know what's going on inside the black box so you don't fall into any traps and step on landmines. And if you understand the power of data, what you can generate by way of marketing impact is humongous. So you need to be very thorough in those areas. Digital and the new technologies, you have to be thorough. So the point is, as a marketer of the future, you are not a functional specialist but you are a multifunctional specialist. In other words, you're a general manager. That's where marketing is heading. It's already there in my mind, but I think that's where it will be getting even more prominently in future. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Raja. It's been enlightening. Thank you very much, Alan. Really appreciate having me here and hopefully we'll speak again sometime soon. Hopefully so. Thank you. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K.com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me, with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.